Thank you for downloading our podcast. Luke's goal is to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus. His aim is to make sure Theophilus is confident about what he has been taught. So what is Luke trying to confirm for Theophilus? What does Luke tell us about Christ's importance in history? Please join us as we seek to answer these questions as we go through Luke's Gospel. I don't remember where I read this, but I remember I read it sometime back regarding Christ and a distinction that we have as Christians, or at least people who profess to be Christians. Uh, when we look at the conservative side of things, generally conservatives have a tendency to minimize the significance of Christ's humanity while loving the divinity. On the flip side of things, that liberals who profess to be Christians have no problem affirming the humanity of Christ, but have a problem with the divinity. And so they would see Christ as a rabbi. And I think this comment is very perceptive in terms of who we are as Christians and the purpose of the Gospels. Because the Gospels wants us to challenge what we believe of Christ. Who do you say is the Christ? Right? I mean, that's really the fundamental challenge. And so we don't want to emphasize either one. We don't want to say, well, Christ is more divinity than humanity, or he's more humanity than divinity. He's both. Two natures joined together in one person, each nature maintaining their distinct properties, not mingling, not mixing, but having two natures joined as one person. And so when we think about that, and we read Luke's gospel, this is a almost a, a transitional passage where we're moving from the birth narrative of Christ to now the significance of Christ uh, setting up for his public ministry and his public debut. And so we have this glimpse in Luke's gospel as he writes this to tell us about what Christ has done. And so what is the significance of Christ and, and what is it to embrace Christ as scripture reports and, and tells us of his ministry and the significance of his ministry. So as we look at this, we'll see first a transitional summary as we think about Christ, secondly, an oversight, and third, a clarified commitment where Christ makes it explicit why he has entered history and the purpose of his ministry. So notice in, in, in verse 39, we have this significant transitional verse. We have this verse where they have done everything that the law of God requires of them. So we think of 2 verse 24 where this same language was echoed, where you have them presenting Christ in the temple, and as they present Christ in the temple, uh, they pay the redemption they're supposed to pay. And so the, the point is Christ has not compromised his ministry or identity in any way. He's one who was born under the law to fulfill the requirements of the law, and he is one who has done this perfectly. And so that's what, what we want to take from this, and, and here in 2 verse 39, he's done everything. When we think about Christ going to the temple, there, there's something we, we can't overlook as we think about what has been revealed. 
We have Simeon, who has uh, given his prophecy and, and revealed the purpose of Christ's ministry, where Simeon has spoken of Christ being one who goes to the Gentiles. So that's his purpose. He's the one who's also for the glory of Israel. So it's not just Gentiles versus Israel. He is to come and to uh, radically divide the human race, not according to Jew and, and Gentile, but according to those who are followers of Christ and those who are not followers of Christ. He is the one who also is going to come and he's going to suffer as Simeon turns to Mary and tells her that her heart will be pierced. Something tragic will happen. Anna, a prophetess, also bore witness to Christ. So we go back to 2 verse 39, we think about Christ being the one who fulfills the, the, the will of God, does this perfectly. We understand that his mission is something that's rather complex, uh, something that when we really think about the implications of this, that Christ literally has to fulfill everything that God has said about the Messiah. Now, when we hear this return to Nazareth, we, we have this summary statement in 1 verse, or 2 verse 40. And his statement is that Jesus is one who grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, as we also have in verse 52. Not the same exact quote, uh, but certainly an echo back to 2 verse 40. Now, hearing this, we, we might say, well, why is this so important? Well, Luke is driving home something he wants us to understand as Christians. We know that Christ is a God-man. We know that he is God, he's from eternity, he's been born of the Virgin Mary, but he wants us to understand that Christ is really human. Because the language here in 2 verse 40 is language that echoes 1 verse 80 with John the Baptist. So we have John the Baptist going into the wilderness, preparing, uh, basically studying the scriptures, meditating on the Messiah, conscious of his prophetic role, and growing in wisdom and growing in knowledge of who the Messiah is, and basically equipping himself as he studies the word, growing in wisdom to know who the Christ is. Well, this is the same thing that Christ is doing here. That this is telling us, according to Christ's humanity, we're tempted to think that maybe Christ can just sort of open the faucet, tune in or tap into the divinity whenever Christ wants, and then he can just get all the knowledge that he wants from the divinity, and then he can bring it into the humanity. But what Luke's telling us is something that is difficult for us to fully comprehend. It is certainly mysterious. It's something we'll never fully grasp that Christ is actually studying, like John the Baptist, meditating, studying. We think about what, uh, what we have with our Chalcedonian uh, orthodoxy, where the Chalcedonian Creed says, the two natures of Christ dwell inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinctions of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. But father, but rather the property of each the property of each nature being preserved. So the point of that is that each nature, human and divine, 
are preserved in what they mean and in their attributes. So who is God? That's preserved. What is man? That is preserved. I think our catechism provides a little bit more of a simple answer in 35 where it says that the eternal Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, that he also might be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. Now the reason I call this to your attention is we're understanding that Christ actually had to have this work ethic. He had to actually work to understand what he is to do, what, what the prophecies say about him, and to actually communicate the word of God as one who has worked. This is why when we think of Christ entering into the synagogue where the Pharisees are, are surprised or the Sanhedrin or those who witness it, a mix of some of the scribes, some of the Pharisees, and uh, just congregants of the synagogue. Where in 4 verse 22 they say, isn't this just Joseph's son? And we have in Mark 6 verse 3 uh, the same context, but it's like, isn't this just a carpenter? So this tells us that Jesus worked by day as a carpenter, and at night he most likely uh, partook, as Bailey says in his book, partook of the Habarium, which is basically Hebrew for friends. And what this is, it's a group of, of men who would get together as sort of a Torah club. So they would get together, they would discuss the implications of the Torah, and as they would study the Torah, they would debate the implications of it and what it meant. And again, Torah doesn't just mean law, it means instruction. It means um, the implications of Moses, what Moses is teaching us. Now, if we look at the prophets, a lot of times, or most of the time, the prophets are taking what Moses has said and prosecuting it, right? They're revealing us to us some more things about Christ, the coming Messiah, the need for redemption. But that's basically what these groups would get together and, and interact with. And so it's very likely as Christ grows in wisdom and stature and knowledge that Christ is part of these discussion groups. Uh, Bailey appeals to the interactions that Christ has uh, with the Pharisees and, and those uh, who challenge him, that Christ is well-versed in a debate culture that you would have in the synagogue, right? The old uh, joke where people ask a rabbi, you know, why is it that rabbis always answer a question with a question? And their answer is, and why shouldn't we, right? I mean, it's tongue-in-cheek, but the implication is this is the debate style, and we see Christ engaging in the style. And so Christ, in terms of the humanity, is one who has to learn, he has to grow, he has to mature, he has to uh, understand more of the implications of what the scriptures are saying. That's what it means that he's one who increases in his stature. Uh, so Christ doing this is something that my systematics professor in the doctrine of Christ drove home to us. He says that which is not truly assumed is not redeemed. Now what he means by that is simply this. That if the true human nature is not joined to the divine in the person of Christ, it means we are out of redemption. We, 
Our bodies are not redeemed. The resurrection is inconsequential. Uh, It means that having a glorified flesh is never going to happen. And so Christ takes on a true human flesh, knows the fatigue of, of work, knows the fatigue of study, is one who is engaged in these endeavors. And so basically, 39 and 40 in that summation there is what this is communicating to us. Now, we can take verses 41 through uh, 51, sort of being the application of this, where we move to an oversight. And with this oversight in 41 through 47, we have now this situation where uh, Christ is is going to Jerusalem, they're going to the Feast of Passover. So this is something, they've done this every year, so the implication is he's done this 12 times. This is his 12th time, as he's 12 years old, he's close to becoming an adult in terms of Jewish understanding. This Feast of the Passover is prescribed, as we can find under Moses in Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 16, Exodus 23, 14 through 16, more details in Leviticus 23. And so there's uh, stipulations where basically as Israel comes together, they're to commemorate their sojourn in the wilderness, recognizing their life coming from Christ are coming from God, being his redeemed people, dwelling in booths, anticipating their entrance into the holy land of God. And so as Jesus now is 12 years old, it seems that there's this uh, time where he joins together with these men uh, in the temple, most likely some sort of a, you know, basically the friends gathering or the Torah club or whatever, and now Christ is here learning at their fate. So we have this this presentation of Christ remains back. We have Jesus' parents with a large caravan, which would make sense. You want to travel in a large group uh, in case something happens. If you travel as an individual, you're prone to robbers or all sorts of, of problems. But if you travel as a group, there's safety. It's easier to uh, make your way back, and it sort of makes the journey a lot easier as well, not to mention a variety of other reasons. But the the point is there's a a large group. And so, as we know, as we ourselves, you know, can sometimes travel in these caravans, you know the time you're leaving, right? You set a time, say we're wheels up or whatever at this time, we might say, and we're pulling out and we're driving out, be there if you're going to join us. And so it's that implication. So all the kids would know this. Everyone in the family would know this. So the implication is you have a large group come together. They head out and they travel back. Well, as they travel back, it's most likely here in this large caravan that they come to their first stop. And as they come to their first stop, they assume Jesus is there. Well, as you come to the first stop, you're going around gathering your family, most likely preparing dinner, and you want to get your family unit together and you want to make sure everything's good. So you go and you're searching for your child. Well, you go and you ask your friends, you ask your family members, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen this child? And they don't find him. So obviously there's a bit of a panic. We've left, he knows when we're leaving, what's going on, what has happened, why isn't Jesus with us? Where is he? And so as, as they, they realize this, 
they go and they leave and it's time for them to return back to the temple or to go back to Jerusalem. Now we have here in verse 47 this presentation of what Christ has done. All who heard him were amazed. So as Christ is interacting with these men who most likely are more seasoned and more developed in terms of their understanding of the Torah, they're kind of taken back. Who's this young child who's preparing for manhood and his bar mitzvah and, and, and he's going to reach adulthood and, and here he is answering these questions in a profound way. Now amazement isn't necessarily a profession. It's not necessarily they're affirming him to be the God-man or a prophet. Amazement is just you're, you're taken back and, and you're shocked, right? We have this, Luke uses this in 8 verse 56. We have a child who was raised, the parents are amazed. Luke 24 verse 22. The men on the road to Emmaus say that these women present this extravagant and, 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 and crazy report that Jesus has been raised from the dead, right? So you clearly see in the context there the amazing report is something that's beyond belief. It didn't really happen. Uh, these are just women engaged in, in crazy babbling is basically how you interpret that in Luke verse 24 or Luke 24 verse 22. So as Jesus is here, the family is searching for them. We find that now the family goes back. And they hear Christ clarifying his commitment, the consciousness of his ministry. So look at verses 48 through 52. We have now Mary going around searching frantically three days in Jerusalem. So most likely going back to the place they stayed, asking different friends, asking different family members who were probably in town and where they stayed, the host family. Have you seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? So three days as she presents it, you know, frantically searching. They're searching in great distress is the language she used. In other words, incredibly worried about where Jesus might be. And so they, they finally find him. And as they find him, he asks this strange question. He says, well, why are you looking for me? You didn't figure out it'd be in the temple? I mean, this is a, a, a shocking answer on a couple levels. On the one hand, you're, you're seeing Jesus kind of responding like a snarky teenager a little bit, right? Now, it's not disrespectful because we know that he's perfect. And he doesn't mean this to undermine his parents. But you find that Jesus has a consciousness of who his real household is is. This is why I wanted to read from Luke 14 with the call to discipleship, right? Christ is going to go on to this. And he's going to say it's not a matter of your covenantal identity or Abraham being your father or possessing the prophets. It's a consciousness that you are found in the household of God. Now I might say, does that mean we have to literally make a pilgrimage to the temple? That's not the point. The house that he's calling attention to is playing on the house of Joseph. And is calling attention to the reality, it's not just the house of David he's identified in, but he's identified in the house of God, the authority of God, the household of God. And it's a call for us to wrestle with where do we identify Christ? How do we find our life? Is it in self? 
Is it in household identity? Or is it in the living God? And that's the call for us to truly discern and wrestle with who Christ is. That's the first thing. Christ hears responding in a manner that is calling attention to his authority, who he's ultimately here to please and to serve as a servant of the Most High, the one who has humbled himself in, in this mission. But we also find how ordinary Christ is. Because one of the things that puzzles me when you read verse chapters 1 through 3 and just kind of set this in the context, you think, there were just angels. So there was an angel who revealed to Mary the nature of the mission of Christ. You had a myriad of angels that revealed to the shepherds the mission of Christ and praising God. And then you have the shepherds revealing this to Mary, where she treasures these things up in her heart. Then you have Simeon and Anna in the temple prophesying about the mission of Christ and the significance of Christ. And so for us as readers, when, when we're reading the gospel, you know, we basically turn one page and forget that was 12 years ago. And that reminds us of how quickly our affections can change, right? Here the parents understand who Christ is, the significance of Christ. Mary's saying, how can this be? I've never known a man. And then all of a sudden this miraculous birth takes place. And now we have Mary saying, where are you? And Jesus is like, don't, don't you remember my mission, my, my ministry? I, I'm here to do something. This is why I'm in history. And so you see how Mary and Joseph have just understood the ordinariness of Christ, where it's underscoring what we said in the, previous, uh, in the first point, of the significance of Christ being true man, that he is just an ordinary boy in terms of, of how he appears and who he is as he's taken on a true human nature. But we have that, that question, as Mary asked him, why have you treated us like this? Why have you done this? In other words, she's saying, why, why did you just stay behind? You knew where we were going. And this is where Jesus wants them to understand, you shouldn't be looking for me. I'm in my father's house. Now, when he says this, you're saying, what is he talking about, right? This is a, the thing that's shocking to us again in verse 50 how how why is christ saying this how how can he talk about father's house what do you mean right this is what i was getting at in the introduction for mary and joseph it was easy to see jesus as her son it was hard for them to truly see him as a god man this is the very thing where we're confronted with who do you say the Christ is? Savior, Redeemer, God, man who has come to die and suffer and be triumphant? Is he just some sort of a guru, some sort of a teacher? Is he some sort of a savior? Is he some sort of a prophet? Well, the reality is when we're trying to categorize Christ in these little categories, we're failing to see the bigger picture of his mission. He is coming to redeem and take away the sins of his people. He is coming to relive the life of Adam and do it perfectly. 
And so this, this narrative that, that we can see as something that may be somewhat filler, you know, we wonder why is this here? But the significance of this is telling us Christ truly took on a human flesh. Human flesh, not a human form, didn't appear to be human, takes on a true human flesh as a God-man. And as Christ does this, we, we have this note then as they don't understand him, so Christ right there can just be like, these people are inferior to me, right? I mean, I understand the greatness of my mission. Who are my parents to come and, and, and be so angry with me, right? You can understand this, this being a, a real temptation. But we have then Luke telling us in verse 51, it doesn't stay in the father's house. Because now is not his time. Now is not the time for him to engage in the fullness of holy war. You, you get a sense as he interacts with the people who are talking about the Torah, he certainly is very competent in terms of his debate skill and what he is able to do. But now is not the time. And so Luke tells us that he goes home and he's submissive to them. So this is something that even for the children, where they might say, well, Christ doesn't understand what it's like uh, to deal with parents that are just irrational and parents that don't really understand or parents who do this or parents who are like this. I, I read this and kind of chuckle and go, well, when's the last time you were absolutely perfect? You have a divine mission and you know what that divine mission is. You get rebuked for preparing yourself for the mission. You're only doing it to serve your father in heaven. And your parents get mad at you for that. And yet Christ goes home and submits to them. That he is submitting to parents who are not perfect. So when we hear Hebrews saying that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, it's saying right up from adults, understanding extreme temptations, understanding extreme trials, that we may endure, all the way down to the child that's mad because they're grounded for whatever silly reason. He can understand all of those struggles is what Luke is communicating to us. And Mary, while she doesn't fully understand, tells us again that she treasures these things in her heart, that she's guarding them, she's building them up, she's uh, basically taking an account of all these things that she has heard. And then we have that summary statement in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So basically, we've had birth. We have a snapshot of Jesus as 12 years old. A reminder that he's so ordinary that his parents forgot his divine mission. However, Christ the whole time has been preparing himself for that divine mission. So now we, we close off in verse 51 of Jesus being 12 years old. Verse 52 is a summary that Jesus continues to engage in these debates. Jesus continues to study. Jesus continues to grow in his wisdom. And so he continues to learn more and more of what the prophets are saying. And so we have Jesus as a reminder of his great work ethic, that he is one who works as a carpenter and one who continues to study and to learn and to grow and to be equipped for his mission as he is one who is endowed 
in the Spirit. And so he increases. It's not that Jesus needs to become more God. It's the reality of as he is God and as he is man, that humanity needs to grow, needs to learn, needs to study. And when we think about this declaration, the reality is when we try and tap into this and try and really rationally grasp it, this is where we get into our creative heresies, if you will. The reality is we will never fully understand how this works, how Christ can be God and man, one person joined together with these two, or these two natures joined together in one person, without them mixing, without them mingling. But it's the reality of what we find of what our Lord has done. And it's important as we ask that question of why is it so difficult for us to embrace the mission of Christ as scripture reports his mission. Because as human beings, on the one hand, by our own sin, we have a tendency of minimizing the impact of sin. We have a, a propensity and, and a bent a desire, if you will, to minimize our own sin and a degree of what needs to be done to take it away. We also fail to understand that as God has created us, we might think that as we are fallen creatures, that somehow as we're in this inferior state, I mean, we are now because of, of what we have done and our sin, that we think that, that somehow what God has declared good wasn't really good. And we're reminded that God didn't create us as failures, as marred sinners, as individuals who were uh, just cast off and, and not uh, truly in perfection. But we're reminded of what happens in the fall. And as Luke reminding us as he writes this letter to Theophilus, again, remember why he writes this in 1 verse 4, such you may be certain of the things you have been taught, right? He wants Theophilus to, to truly believe this and be certain that Christ is the Christ. But Theophilus isn't just a Roman official. I believe that as he writes to Theophilus and names Theophilus as an invitation for us to be Theophilus, in a sense of what the name means, lovers of God. And to understand what Christ has really done to secure our redemption as a God-man, to take on the flesh, to be the one who makes perfect holy war against Satan, as all the temptations are presented before him, Christ does not fail. And he does so as a perfect human. And to be divine, to take away that eternal sanction that we deserve of death so we can have life. And as he pours out his spirit, that as we are joined to the resurrected Christ, it's that understanding of what he has assumed he has redeemed. That he has taken on a true human flesh. He has been raised as a glorified human being, as a God-man, two natures still joined together. He is seated in heaven as a glorified God-man. 
And so we can be assured that the very flesh that we experience that's breaking down and experiencing uh, the pain of the common curse, that Christ has set a precedent that overturns that pain, securing us once for all as a God-man who has truly worked with a a laser-like focus on his mission, on his ministry, to truly be faithful to the Father at every point. Let us not then minimize the significance of Christ, but let us see ourselves as a people assembled before the heavenly assembly, having the privilege of being redeemed in Christ, that as we take hold of him by faith, his work, his perfection, his completion is our perfection as our great Melchizedekian priest. Let us walk and conform to him in the power of the new life he has given to us as his redeemed people. Let us sojourn under the sun with our focus and orientation above the firmament of the sky, seeing our Lord and Redeemer and our Savior who has called us and made us alive, made us worthy to be his people. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.